Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Back to the Bins. Kind of feel like Austin Powers there for a second, allow myself to introduce myself. But welcome back to the show. My name is Michael Bailey, and with me, as always, because, well, it, w- it was his show first, is Scott Gardner. Hey! <laughs> who's apparently had a massive head injury between this week and last week, so there you go. <laughs> it's just my perpetual state. Uh, not so- going to touch that with a 10 week head. So how's it going, man? It's going great, you know. Got got some good comic book goodness to bring you. I think yeah. I think mine's gonna, my, I think mine's gonna cause an argument actually. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, good. I've just been waiting to argue with you anyway. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> well, on your on your Facebook page, among your hobbies is arguing and disagreeing and telling Mike that he's wrong. So uh, <laughs> I don't know why you felt the need to put that on Facebook, but there you go. There you go, jackass. <laughs> Oh, so let's see. I'm going first, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I have got a good one for this this time around. It suddenly occurred to me that I have never talked about this. T- I, at least I think I have. I don't know. My memory's not so good, so, you know, bear with me, folks. But I don't think I've talked about this title before, and it kind of surprised me when I realized it. Anyway, we're going back to August 1975, and it breaks my freaking heart to realize that that's now 35. Five years ago. Jeez Christ. <laughs> Holy shit, I can't believe it's that long. How's it going, Grandpa? Oh, I'm telling you. Anyway, this is Fantastic Four, number 161. Now, why am I picking this one? Well, this was among a, a minor uh, lot that I scored recently at the local flea market, and most of the other titles in that lot that I bought, I've recently talked about the titles themselves or the characters that are in those titles. So I I try to shake it up. I try not to repeat too much within, you know, too many handfuls of episodes, but fantastic four. I don't remember ever talking about them on back to the bin. So I thought, well, what the hell I'll pull this one out. I'll read this one. So we've got cover. There are no cover credits on this one, but I'm fairly certain that it's the same as the interior art team. Although Johnny Storm on the cover looks very Gil Kane-ish to me, so there may be a touch of the Gil Kane in there. But the Wasn't int- he doing a lot of their covers during this? Yeah, yeah, he was. Give it a uniform look. Yeah, so that's that's what makes me think there might be a little bit of Gil Kane in there. But uh, the interior artists are Rich Buckler, one of my faves, and inked by Joe Sinnott. Writer and editor is Roy Thomas, our old friend Roy Thomas. And uh, the original cover price on this one was $0.25, cents, and I scored it at the flea market for $0.50, cents, so I think I did pretty good. We start out, the story is entitled, All the World Wars at Once. Mm-hmm. And we start off with a really cool-looking splash page, you know, very uh, typical uh, Rich Buckler pose here. It's Mr. Fantastic. And he's in kind of like the Fantastic Four's version of the X-Men's Danger Room. And he's testing himself, and he's got these uh, missiles filled with live explosives are flying at him, and he's got this look on his face like, oh my god, kind of thing. And he puts himself through his paces, and he ends up pretty dinged up at the end of it. And he comes to the realization that he is losing his elasticity, his ability to stretch and retract fully. And he's pretty bummed out about this and not sure what to do about it. 
and his wife comes to check up on him. She heard all the noise and wants to know what's going on, and he doesn't want to tell her yet what what he fears and what he thinks may, may be going on. She's concerned about her brother because apparently at the end of last issue or a prior issue, Johnny, Johnny stormed off in a huff because he found out that not only has Reed incorporated the Fantastic Four, but he also sold off a bunch of the patents for different inventions and stuff. And Johnny's pissed. He feels like Reed is is selling out. Like he's selling out himself. He's selling out the team. And he's really worked up about this for some reason. He bursts into human torch mode and flies off, almost sets a whole bunch of civilians on fire. and They're not too happy about it. And he flies to this swampy area in what he calls what's left of the wilds of Long Island. I have no idea where this is supposed to be. And here he finds a gateway that, well, he says they already knew about it. He says, here's where we we first discovered the gateway to what we lovingly call the fifth dimension. And he's going there. He says he's going to look for a certain blue-skinned lady um, he's looking for a sympathetic shoulder to cry on, basically. So he steps into this dimensional portal thing and fades out from our reality and into the fifth dimension that's populated by a bunch of uh, blue-skinned people. They look a lot like Namor's people, really. Is, is Mr. Mixius Pedelic there? No, no, he's not. And Damn it! <laughs> and they immediately set upon him. They think that he is an androne. And they blast him with these ice guns, and they take him out, and they're going to take him and dismantle him. They think he's some sort of a robot, and and Johnny's all freaked out about this, and he's helpless. There's nothing he can do. When suddenly on this flying skiff platform thing, this dude named Phineas and his daughter Valeria show up, and Johnny knows these guys, and they know him, and and Phineas berates the the locals that shot Johnny down for being a bunch of morons. So this man's flesh and blood. He's not a robot. And Johnny's all pissed. You know, you want, you know he demands of Phineas, what the hell's going on here? And Phineas tells him that, you know, believe it or not, we are at war, and the enemy is Reed Richards. And it turns out that Reed Richards has been sending these Androne guys into their dimension, and they've been raising all kinds of hell and blowing shit up and all this, and so that's why uh, you know they're they're in a state of state of siege. They're at war, and Johnny is not buying any of this. You know he knows Reed, and he doesn't understand what the situation is. So Phineas takes him into the control center, and he shows him this bank of televisions. He calls it the multi viewer, where they're spying on Earth, and they're witnessing all this stuff going on. And Johnny sees uh, the president speaking and realizes that the president is Nelson Rockefeller, which now embarrasses me to have to do this, but I realize that this is 1975 and a lot of our listeners are, are very, very young. Nelson Rockefeller, folks, was not the president of the United States in 1975. <laughs> um, so we are looking at another Earth, okay? This is a parallel Earth. I only say that because recently in English class, I and my teacher were the only ones in the entire room of about 30 people who knew who Buzz Aldrin was, and it shocked the piss out of me. So I, I feel obligated to point out that <laughs> Rockefeller was never the president of the United States. He, he was he was in the Rolling Stones, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, 
So it comes out in this that the Reed Richards that they're at war with is this alternate Earth Reed Richards who actually in this reality uh, became the thing. You know, or at least he's all rocky like the thing. And Johnny's really freaked out about this idea that, you know, there's this alternate Earth, you know, and, with all these things going on. And about the time that he's being brought up to speed on all of this, the Androns attack again. And Johnny takes him out, and it turns out that, you know, their big vulnerability is heat. So, of course, he's the perfect dude. And so he decides that he's going to sign on with Phineas. He's going to help them defend their world. We cut to this alternate Earth where the thing, our thing, um, is already on this world, and he has hooked up with the Ben Grimm of that world. Now, the Ben Grimm of that world is not the thing. He's just Ben Grimm. And he is um, either boyfriend or husband to that world's Sue. So in this, in this world, it's Sue and, uh, and uh, Ben that are hooked up. And... It's a little. This is the thing. Is I, this is one of those stories where you're literally thrown into the middle of it, and then there's not a lot of stuff that's bringing you up to speed. So I wasn't exactly sure why the thing was there, or exactly what was supposed to be going on. But they set out, and they're flying in this little skimmer thing through the city when they see what looks very, very, very much like Marvel's version of Godzilla is tearing up the city. <laughs> And, you know, so immediately Ben jumps out of this skimmer thing and goes into battle with, with the lizard and he knocks it out and everything and the city's all, you know, congratulating him and, you know, thanks for saving us kind of thing. And he catches, uh, it says, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. And uh, Ben walks up to, the, and it's one of these, like, department store windows with the TVs in it. And Ben wants to hear what the president's got to say when he realizes, hey, that ain't President Ford. It's Rocky, is what he calls uh, Nelson. <laughs> and uh, so while he's watching this, suddenly he's attacked by the army, and they gas him, and he passes out. And we come to realize that Ben Grimm, that world's Ben Grimm, and Sue have sold him out. And Ben has serious second thoughts about having done this, and Sue tries to reassure him that he has done the right thing. What the hell that's all about, I don't know. So we cut back, and this is great. The caption actually says, while back on Earth 1, and then in parentheses it says, oops, wrong comic bag. I get a <laughs> kick out of that because, you know, of course, great. that's Roy Thomas's stick. Is, you know, over at DC, he was the big Earth 2 guy. So I got a big kick out of that. I thought that was funny. So we cut back there, and uh, Sue has come to collect... Read to show him that some serious shit is going down on their planet, that all of a sudden massive glaciers are crushing small cities in northern Canada and Scandinavia, and they're moving relentlessly southward. And and Reed quickly deduces that it's some sort of uh, attack from another dimension. And somehow, in an amazing leap of logic, he figures out exactly what dimension it must be. It must be the fifth dimension. So he uh, has this prototype scanner that he's been working on to where he can actually peer into the fifth dimension, and he uses this, and he can't believe his own eyes. There he sees Johnny is already in the fifth dimension, standing alongside Valeria and Phineas, and an invasion force poised to strike at the Earth. And that's how the issue ends. And holy shit, was I confused. <laughs> I... <laughs> 
You know? <laughs> <laughs> I need a flow chart to figure this yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I like the idea that, um, I mean, at the end of it, I'm, I'm left confused is, you know, now Earth, whatever, or, uh, I think this turns out to be counter-Earth. I don't know if it's called such at the time, but I believe that is the Earth that, that Nelson Rockefeller is this also the earth where like the squadron supreme comes from and all that if I remember right I, I don't know because I didn't think there were any other Marvel heroes on that earth yes yeah I'm not yeah I'm, I think well all I know is that I, I read an, an issue of the Avengers not long ago that had the squadron supreme in it and the president of their earth because he ends up becoming involved with the serpent society was Nelson Rockefeller but whether that's the same Earth and the same Nelson Rockefeller that we're seeing here, I, I don't know. I'm assuming so, but you know, don't hold me to it. I don't I don't know that I've got my facts all straight. But I like the idea that this other Earth is causing the shit that's going down in the fifth dimension, and then the fifth dimension may actually be going to war with the wrong Earth. So I don't know how this story plays out. Like I say, I'm I'm thrown immediately into the middle of it. And other than the John, you know, the classic John Byrne run of event of uh, Fantastic Four, and much later on the Tom DeFalco. Um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to blank on that artist's name. But it was the No One Gets Out Alive storyline. Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. I love Paul Ryan. I can't believe I forgot his name. Other than that stuff, I've only got scattered issues of Fantastic Four. I, I like them. I think they're cool. I got nothing against them. I just was never a regular reader, and I didn't keep up a lot on on their you know month to month happenings. So this story, while it was very interesting, it was very intriguing. I'd love to know what's up with uh, Reed Richards and losing his elasticity and all that. I didn't know what the hell was going, <laughs> but. Um, you know, I'd be curious to find out. You know, so I'll, I'll keep I'll keep my eyes open for you know issues that will follow this up or what, and see if I can figure it out. Yeah, my my main exposure to the the FF was uh, John Byrne. Yeah, I mean that's that... for the bulk of my. I mean, I, I have like the two issues he did that were originally supposed to be like giveaways of Burger King, but for whatever reason they decided it was too violent so they just threw it into the comic books <laughs> and like nine issues later he took over and those nine issues are really freaking bizarre everyone seemed to be chasing Jack and Stan on that title <laughs> and I don't think anybody could really do that because that was that was lightning in a bottle right? Mm -hmm. with what they were able to do or at least the good parts and uh, sadly I read the Heroes Return Fantastic Four rather regularly for like two years. God, that sucked. Did it Even really? The, uh, Scott Lobdell was writing the title at first. That poor guy catches such shit. And I think he's actually... Uh, the, what I read of his ex stuff, I actually liked a lot. And that's I caused somebody to dash didn't. their iPod to the ground. But And... Uh, and his big idea for when he took over the FF was that he was going to bring back Red Ghost and the Super Apes. Oh, except the Super Apes were going to be the smart ones, and the Red Ghost wasn't going to be. And I'm like, that's crap. And then Chris <laughs> Claremont took over, and he tried. You know, he tried to bring the family aspect, but Claremont is one of those writers that brings, like, all of the pet characters he creates with him. Right. So you've got to have a certain familiarity with his X-Men run, 
to know who some of these supporting characters are. So that was just my main issues with those. Well, it struck both of us after last episode that we were completely remiss in uh, covering, or at least I was anyway, in covering the ads. And so this time around, there are a couple doozies, and I I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. So the first one is, I wish I could remember what toy company released the the very famous $6 million man action figure, because I loved that (laughs) thing when I was a kid. But I'm hoping it's Hasbro, because if it wasn't Hasbro, then I don't know why in the hell Hasbro didn't have the shit suit out of them, because the ad in this one is G.I. Joe meets the amazing Atomic Man. And this was a dude that was born handicapped, so he engineered himself a bionic arm, a bionic leg, and a bionic eye. Does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> now, what I want to know is, did he actually, you know, Steve Austin, the $6 million man, had all that stuff done to him because he was in a horrible accident. This guy is perfectly able-bodied, or, you know, uh, he's got all his limbs, it's just that he's handicapped. So did he actually go through something where they, like, cut his arm and leg off and took his <laughs> eye out? That's pretty gruesome, man. Wow. But yeah, it's it's a complete rip off of the of the six million dollar man, and I cannot believe that they got away with this shit. But yeah, just looking at the guy, it's it's amazing. But what kills me is uh, now he's only got one bionic leg, but it shows this one part where he's use he says with with my atomic leg I can run two hundred miles per hour. Well, how does that work? How does the other leg keep up? You know, <laughs> it seems ow, like it would ow, just ow, shred. Ow, ow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're gonna have one mass- massive Charlie horse when he's getting, you know after he gets off the treadmill. Maybe he's doing it one legged, which would be pretty. <laughs> that'd be pretty impressive if that he could hop two hundred miles an hour. <laughs> All right, and then the other one here, there is actually a Hostess Twinkies ad in this, Yay. and this is such a major part. Probably, for all we know, probably our the favorite part of <laughs> listeners to Tales of the Justice Society of America. So. As I come across these, I will point them out, and Mike will do likewise. This one is a humdinger, I swear. This is Captain Marvel in the Big Bang. Now, this is Marvel's Captain Marvel, not the Shazam one. This is the one, you know, he had the red and blue outfit with the star on the front and all that. And, uh, all right, here's how it goes. He's flying along, and suddenly an Air Force plane pulls up alongside and says... Or actually, it's not an airplane, it's a spaceship. It says, uh, Captain Marvel, this is Spaceship 49. We have intercepted a message from Nitro headquarters. And Captain Marvel says, what's that creep up to now? And they tell him, they say, the message reveals a plot for a big blow-up, the biggest yet. Captain Marvel says, must be an attack on Fort Knox. The guy says, nope, that's not it. Captain Marvel says, either way, I'll have to set a trap. Meanwhile, and Nitro's laughing to himself, he says, ha, I'll blow a hole in the middle of the ocean so big, it'll flood the world. Uh, I don't think it works that way, dude. So one of his one of his folks points out the window and says, Nitro, look, Captain Marvel is escorting that ship. Nitro says, must be carrying valuable cargo. Let's follow him first. Look, the side of the mountain is opening up, and Marvel's turning back. The ship was probably on remote control. Let's capture that ship and get the treasure. And Captain Marvel flies away thinking, ha, they're taking the bait. Later, inside the mountain, and you've got uh, Nitro and his goons are all munching down on Hostess Twinkies. He says, "Mm, we've got enough Hostess Twinkies to last a month. 
wow, golden sponge cake with creamy filling inside. And Captain Marvel says, this will keep Nitro busy for a while. I knew he'd get a big bang out of Hostess Twinkies. Now to blast his headquarters. And he flies off while they're still chomping his I'm going, what an idiotic story. <laughs> so he's just going to leave them there, munching down on Twinkies, and then go off and blow up their headquarters? or Why doesn't he just take them into custody? The headquarters isn't the isn't the threat. Nitro's the threat. Oh my god. <sighs> well, Marvel was never the brightest bulb. Nope, he wasn't. His very best story was the story where he died. So that tells you a whole lot about this version <laughs> of Captain Marvel. I still have to read some of those. <laughs> so what you got, man? Well, I've I, I have chosen a book. That uh, based upon a previous conversation where I said I didn't like this book, and you're like, "But I love that book." Oh no! You're so I went. Line me up. So I went to the Fortress of Bailytude Archives. <laughs> it's a substantial building that is climate controlled. Actually, I just went to my right and grabbed one of my uh, books out of my Superman box, and I took out Superman number three hundred. From June 1976, cover price of 30 cents. This was an anniversary tale of sorts because it was the 300th. It says Superman's 300th and greatest issue, and I have to completely disagree with them um, because I have serious, serious problems. All right, you've got to you've got to give me a moment. I want to pull this up and uh, and read along with you on this. Okay, that's fine. I, I won't. I won't get in your way. I just want to have it in front of me for reference because it's been a while since I've uh, since I've read this one. It's your world squirrel. I'm just living Let's in it. <laughs> what? That's something somebody said to me once. So. Superman 300. Let's see. It's on disc 110s. Get there. I mean, I have the paper issue, but it takes five times longer to <laughs> throw comic boxes around all day till I got to it, so it's just easier to pull up a CBR. Alright, I've got it before me. Okay. So, this issue of Superman was written by Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magan, and art by Kurt Swan and Bob Oxner, or however you say his name, and this is, well, let me let the uh, the opening text uh, take it away. Years ago, a baby landed on Earth uh, from the far-off planet Krypton, a baby adopted by the kindly couple named Kent, who grew up as Superboy in the Thomas small of, t- small of Townville. The town of Smallville. I can read! <laughs> that moved to Metropolis to begin his astounding career as the Man of Steel. Yes, readers, that is the legend known around the world. But now you're about to see what would happen if the baby landed on Earth today in 1976. A baby who would grow up in 25 years to become Superman 2001. And we open with the pretty standard origin, you know, Krypton's dying, Jor-El puts him in the rocket, it's even the the, the blue kind of... uh, I like to think of it as like a giant marker, almost, uh, shaped <laughs> rocket. But on this Earth, there is apparently radar, uh, which was not prevalent in the 1930s at all, because we didn't have satellites and such. And this takes place on February 29th, 1976. Uh, the 
Radar picks up the approach of the craft, including That's using the... That's your birthday, isn't it? Yes, that is, ex- that is my exact birthday. <laughs> including using the Apollo Soyuz to track it, and the Russians and the Americans race to get the craft out of the international waters. The helicopters crash into each other, but Lieutenant Thomas Clark survives and uses his indomitable spirit to get the rocket for the good old U.S. of A. Hooray! The U.S. gets the craft to do uh, to a research installation, and the scientists there discover not, that not even their most powerful laser can cut through the ship. Suddenly, the craft pops open, and a baby pops out and is hit by the laser straight in the face, but is unharmed. The kid is hungry and speaking several different languages and crashes through the place to, until he finds food. The people of the military installation study the kid further, and discover the majority of his powers, and even a fashion and outfit uh, out of his blankets. The young child decides to speak American, since the men are speaking it. The lieutenant asks the general what the S stands for, and the general responds, Skyboy. Meanwhile, the Russians slam their shoe on the table, so to speak, about the fact that there is a child on board the craft, and if there is one, it belongs to the world, not just the U.S., and the USSR is prepared to take any measures to prevent America indoctrination of the space visitor. Time marches on, and by 1990, the world sees wonders beyond wonders, and I love these things. The new Empire State Building has reclaimed the, t- the title of world's tallest skyscraper, stabbing a full mile into the sky. Supersonic aircraft no longer harm the ecology of the land, departing and arriving at floating seaports. So we're not messing up the land, but the oceans are really, mess- are really screwed up by now. <laughs> and the the hallowed White House remains unchanged, except there is a it is covered by an impenetrable dome protected from all who might do the president harm. <laughs> I hate stuff like this. Uh, the U.S. reveals the presence of the child, and the USSR is still all bad things will happen if he is not made a ward of the United Nations. Meanwhile, a third world power, and that is all it's described as. They don't even make up a country name. It is a third world power. (laughs) Seeks to use the tensions between the two superpowers as a means to increase their own power base. At a secret installation in Arizona, General Kent Garrett informs Skyboy that he needs to decide whether or not he, he should become a ward of the United Nations. Suddenly there is a red alert, and the two nations start World War III. Skyboy launches into action as it is revealed that the Third World Party has sabotaged the radar systems of both countries to trick them into launching their missiles. Skyboy takes care of all of the missiles in addition to the laser and gaseous weapons as well before seemingly disappearing, which gives the world a temporary peace because everyone figures out, oh, we were idiots to try to obliterate each other. Skyboy, meanwhile, is attending the funeral of General Garrett and decides to take the name of his two quote-unquote fathers and vows that Clark Kent will never use his superpowers again, even going so far as to throw his uniform into the sea uh, calling it a play suit. Years later, in 2001, Clark works for the Tri-Vision Planet-Wide News. Oh, there's that Dr. Pepper Burp. Excellent. And reports on the Millennium festivities that have begun in the huge metropolitan area from Boston to Washington that is now called Metropolis. Suddenly, word comes in from Times Square that a being called Mocha is claiming responsibility for saving the world in 1990 and demands allegiance. In that unnamed third world power, we find the men from 11 years ago 
are controlling Mocha, who is actually a superpowered android and want to use it to rule the Earth. I'd Bart- love to get this guy. Or if I'd go to like Starbucks and order a mocha and they'll give you this guy. That'd be excellent. <laughs> Little four-armed android. Uh, Clark decides the time has come for him to step up, so he grabs his suit from the ocean and flies into action. The people below are buying into what Mocha is selling and cheer him on as the two fight. Superman wins out, though, and is rather patronizing to the crowd before giving a Captain Planet the power is yours speech and flying off. And a monument is erected in his honor, and when a kid asks Clark Kent if they will ever see him again, Clark says that even the world is on a steady course, they may see him again if the need is there. Now, um... I have a few minor and one really big nitpick of this story. Uh, the minor ones are the the president's name seems to be Wiener. <laughs> what? If you look at the, at the president, uh, the president's last name, I, I it looks like Wiener. All right, what page is this on? Uh, let's see. Damn it! I wish I had that. Oh, they're not that. numbered, are they? No, they're not. And yeah, you're right, <laughs> President Wiener. <laughs> Uh, that that's just that's just me going <laughs> like a little like a five year old or something doing the, doing the butt head laugh yeah um I realize that they only have so much time in this story because this is pretty this is just a standard size story it was not exercised it was not a big one it was it was just you know like your twenty two page twenty three page comic book story uh but the U.S. the U.S. and the USSR make up rather quickly. They're like launching missiles at each other, and th- thirty seconds later, it's like, "Oh, we shouldn't have done that." And that's kind of a problem with the story. Is every time there's something dramatic, and there's supposed to be tension, it's alleviated in like three panels, which most of the time I don't mind. But the story itself just felt very, very rushed. And I am a bit amused at those future predictions, though I will say this. They totally nailed the global news network. Oh, yeah. And the way people – because when we're in 2001, it's it's that usual 60s and 70s concept that the year 2000 was going to be this amazing world uh, uh, of, of giant screen television. Wait a second. That happened. Uh, but of like plastic furniture and everyone wearing bizarre clothes where really fashions weren't all that different, but they seem to have basically what is the internet mm-hmm. where you have different channels and CNN came along in the late seventies and the early eighties. So really and truly they, they nailed that, but the new empire state building and airports moving out to the oceans, I mean, that's a little impractical for people in the Midwest well, plus domed, anything domed seemed to be a big deal right back around this time. Uh, I, and I, I blame Walt Disney World for that. I think yeah. that, you know, that, that when Walt announced way back when that Disney World and Epcot and all that was going to be covered in this, this big bubble, people never really seemed to get over that. Because my, my, my friend Mark still to this day tells me that, that there'll be like old people will come to Walt Disney World and it'll start raining and stuff and he'll ask them when they're going to put the dome up because they remember the you know when that was announced you know they've never forgotten it and so yeah a lot of stories in this era like Logan's Run and stuff we all lived in domed <laughs> in the future but but here's my main problem now i realize this is an alternate reality but i am of the opinion that no matter the retelling of superman's origin there should be some constants 
And one of those constants is that he needs to be found by the Kents. He needs to be found by the kindly Midwestern couple raised as a human, you know, raised as a human, discovering his powers and realizing what he should do with him, with them. I don't like him being found by the government and then basically hiding out for 11 years, uh, trying to figure out what he needs to do with his abilities. That just doesn't, it doesn't seem like Superman to me. I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. And years later, uh, I don't know if you ever read Supreme Power by J. Michael Straczynski and Gary Frank. No. This is basically, Supreme Power was a take on Squadron Supreme. Mm-hmm. It was like a, a modern day updating of it. Right. And this is what they did with Hyperion. When he landed, he was found by the government. And the government raised him as normal. They had these two, like, basically CIA agents raising him as his quote-unquote parents. Does that go back to and, this story, or is that just a coincidence? I don't, I don't know. I'd have to ask J. Michael Straczynski. But I, I found the similarities very interesting uh, when I read this, finally. Because I read this before I read Squadron Supreme. I mean, uh, Supreme Power, which is a good title. Uh, and, and if you want to see... Uh, Whatever the Wonder Woman analog in that universe was, like stark raving naked throughout uh, most of an issue, pick it up. Because cool. yeah, she's she's really naked. Boy, was that an awkward moment in the break room. <laughs> I was the only one in there. Thank God, I worked at a at a pretty large big box retail establishment. I would have hated if like some. Uh, me not knowing what was in it, but if a female coworker was sitting next to me and then turned me in and I get fired for sexual harassment, uh, <laughs> that would have sucked. Uh, though I did end up getting fired from that place anyways, but not for sexual harassment, thank God. But uh, I just, that is my problem with this, is that it, it, it doesn't feel like Superman to me. You know, what makes him who he is is not there. And I realize that a lot of Elseworlds stories have that as their underpinnings, but... I don't really like those for the same reason. I mean, there are some that I enjoy, but, you know, I like Superman a certain way, and this isn't the way I like him to be. It's been a long time since I've reread this one, and uh, and I will freely admit that a lot of my my affection for this issue is because I grew up with it, so I'm looking at it through, you know, rose-colored glasses and all that. But I don't know, I have a real soft spot for this one. For one thing, one thing that really makes this issue for me is uh, while I greatly respect the man's work ethic and and dedication to the character and the the title for so many years, I was never the biggest Kurt Swan fan, yet the art in this particular issue, man, he brought his fucking A-game. It looks really good. I will will fully admit to that. Yes, the artwork was good. And I, I think that's part of my long-standing uh, affection and appreciation for this particular issue is that Superman in this, this this is some of the best Superman art from from Swan of this era. And I, I really like, I mean, he looks very dynamic. And a lot of times when Superman, as drawn by Swan, would would punch somebody or get in a fight. It it didn't look terribly dynamic or that he was really hurting them. You know, it was done in very much like a super friends kind of style. But in this one, he beats the shit out of Mocha. (laughs) Yes, he does. He drives, he does a curse thing. Yeah. (laughs) I can't say that with a straight. Now in the winter time, does he become iced Mocha? That's all. (laughs) 
No, he he punches him dead in the face, shattering his jaw, and then does a Kirk two two footed uh, kick to him, <laughs> and then rips him in half. But then, uh, yeah, it was uh, he's a little patronizing to this crowd. Now, if I had just read this for like for you know had never read it before and picked it up and read it, it probably would not come off as anything special or spectacular. But having you know, I mean, I got this as a kid in '76 when it came out, so it's just always been a, a sentimental favorite. But yeah, I'm kind of flipping back through it now. I, I was following along with you as you were reviewing it, and yeah, it's it's probably not anything really. I mean, I'm not saying it's the worst Superman story ever told, right? And it's not that it wasn't presented in an inter- interesting or entertaining uh, fashion because it was. The writing was very strong. It's just a conceptual thing. Right, you know, it, you know, I can like it all day. I can like a house all day long if it's constructed well, but if it's painted orange, I'm not going to like it. So right. So, but there are some like like you. There are some good ads in here. They got a, a Joker hostess ad. <laughs> the Joker as the cornered clown. We know the Joker is holed up in that building. Come out with your hands up, Joker. And have you tossed me back into a padded cell? I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. I still have a trick up my sleeve. It's like the old movies. You'll be the Keystone Cops, and I'll throw pies. And he throws a bunch of Hostess fruit pies at them. It's like, duck! Duck nothing. These are Hostess fruit pies. Oh boy, cherry! I'm sure you say that a lot. (laughs) And another cop's like, yum, apple. Now while their guard is down, I'll sneak out and... And a bunch of cops sneak up on him, eating the fruit pies, going, Our guard is never down, not even while eating this tender crust with real fruit filling. It's back to Arkham Asylum for you. One question, Joker. Why didn't you keep any Hostess fruit pies for yourself? Because I don't like them. Wow, he is crazy. (laughs) And you'll get a big delight in every bite of Hostess fruit pies. (laughs) But the last laugh is on them because the very next panel, which they didn't include, is all of the cops dropping dead from the Joker toxin <laughs> Joker that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, now there's else? another ad in here that I spotted. Um, I'm not sure what page it's on in the one that you're looking at because I'm looking at this on a, on a CBR and the ads are all chucked to the very back of the book. Um, hang on, let me get to it. It's a t-shirt ad. There's a, it says, new, order the official Young American for 76 Bicentennial t-shirt now. Do you see that ad in your book? You don't remember us talking about this? Did we? Uh, on uh, Tales of the Justice Society? I mentioned it. There was another ad like this. Is that is that Willis? I was just going to uh, say, that's, that's the reason I was bringing this up, is that's Willis from uh, Different Todd, Strokes. Todd Bridges from, yeah. from Different Strokes. It that's sure funny. as hell is. And that girl even looks a little bit like Marsha from the Bradys, but I don't think it is her. But yeah, that's definitely Todd Bridges. She, she's got a thing for that guy, though. That dorky-looking guy? Yeah, but but he's like that sensitive scumbag that got a lot of play in the 70s. <laughs> you just kind of want to punch him dead in the face. <laughs> he plays the guitar and knows about feelings. Yeah, screw you. Um, there is an ad that has two books, which are actually sitting on my bookshelf. Uh, books, now a real treasure to add to your collection. Find cloth-bound books. Superman from the 30s to the 70s. Batman from the 30s to the 70s. Uh, people who follow my other podcasts are probably sick to death of me talking about these things, but I <laughs> love these are two books I found in the school library, and are these books are directly responsible for anything I do involving comics. 
because these were the first comics I ever really read. But you also have uh, more of the DC Giants. They have that Batman with that cover of him with his hands on his uh, his fists on his hips with the bat signal in the background, which is mm-hmm. just awesome. Yeah. So uh, ads were just better back in the day. Hell yeah. But that's all I got for that. I um, cool. Again, not terrible, but just you know, coming off of the storyline that 